Welcome to a special edition of the Innovation Agenda with the California Technology Council, where we take a close look at the relationship between government and the climate that supports innovation and entrepreneurship. Now we turn to our host in our Northern California headquarters, Matt Gardner, founder of the California Technology Council. It's deadline day for filings with the FCC on their notice of proposed rulemaking for privacy and ISPs. To mark this occasion, we had a conversation with the Honorable Peter Swire, a privacy expert who served in both the Obama and Clinton administrations. Before we get into that, just a couple quick reminders. The California Technology Council is very excited about programming and services being offered through CalCISO, the California Cybersecurity Information Sharing Organization. And for more information about that, check out californiatechnology.org slash CalCISO or email us at cyber at californiatechnology.org. There's more coming soon from Clean Acres and the California Business Incubation Alliance as well. For more information on those and any of our initiatives, please visit californiatechnology.org. We'll turn our attention to Peter Swire in a moment. Before that, here's a word from Office Depot. Leading a startup team? Hi, this is Janet McTaggart with Office Depot. Whether you're delivering a sugar rush, stocking coffee, or setting up a regular delivery of snacks, Office Depot has solutions that fit every startup's culture. From getting those first business cards and stationery to ordering fleece pullovers with your new logo, Office Depot can help. Learn about how Office Depot and the California Technology Council have partnered to bring you savings on all these startup essentials and more at californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. Peter Swire is an attorney and the head of policy for the Institute for Information Security and Privacy at Georgia Tech. He also served in both the Clinton and Obama administrations in privacy-related roles. Here's our conversation. On this episode of the Innovation Agenda, we're visiting with Peter Swire from Georgia Tech University. And uh, Peter's also the policy director for the Institute for Information Security and Privacy. Peter, thanks for joining us today. Great to be here. Peter, you've had a, a working paper and an ongoing dialogue with uh, uh, a lot of original research on the evolution of privacy and ISPs. Can you talk about that effort and, and connect it to uh, what the work of the Institute uh, is. Sure, thanks very much, Matt. So we, we released a, a paper in draft in uh, the end of January, uh, sorry, the end of February this year. We took comments and now we have a new version that's just gone up um, at, in May. And, and it was called Online Privacy and ISPs. Um, and the subtitle was ISP Access to Consumer Data is Limited and often less than accessed by others. And so th this really has to do with the facts about how ISPs, Internet Service Providers, operate today, and there were some, some surprising changes. I think the biggest surprise, the, the statistic that's been picked up the most in the press, is the role of encryption when it comes to the ISPs. So um, as recently as two years ago, um, we, we found that only 13% of the bits that were going through the backbone in the United States were encrypted. That had jumped up to 49% uh, by this uh, January, so half of the bits, a huge increase. And it's an estimated 70% of the bits are going to be encrypted by the end of this year. And, and I'm just, the, the encryption matters to the big picture of what the regs should be for the, for the Internet service providers. And uh, when in the old days, in an unencrypted world, if you sent an email or you went to a website as a user, 
um, the ISP would route you to the other website, and it could actually look, it had the technical capability if it decided to do it, to look at what your header was, interesting name of email or the name of the website. And it could also look at what's called the content through deep packet inspection. It could look and see what the actual bits were that you were reading or that you were sending. When it's encrypted, which is, as we now say, about half the data now and heading towards a bigger amount, then all of those bits in the content are blocked. Even the detailed URL, the detailed name of the page you went to, are blocked. And all the ISP can see at that point is that you went to google.com or you went to some other website.com. And the, this was important because part of the debates about privacy and the Internet Service Providers and the FCC, Federal Communications Commission, part of that has been uh, an idea, at least voiced originally, that ISPs were different because they had what's sometimes called comprehensive visibility into your data which meant that they were sitting there on the wire between the user and the web. And in an unencrypted world, if they wanted to, though a lot of times they didn't have the time, money, or inclination, but if they wanted to, they could look at every bit that was going by that you connected to by your home computer or your wireless computer. And um, that comprehensive part looks a lot different if 50 or 70 or whatever percent of it is actually blocked, so they don't see it. Now, ISPs are big companies. They can still see a lot of data. Some of it could be very interesting data for different purposes. But the idea that the ISPs see everything, which I think was sort of the default view of a lot of people, turns out not to be true based on our research. So that, that's a, a sort of an introduction. Well, I don't know what would be most helpful to your listeners. Should we describe sort of why there's a regulation right now and what some of the, the debates are about? Or should I talk more about the study? Or what would you like to do, Matt? Well, yeah, thanks, Peter. I think we should try and get all that in. Uh, can we start with um, what has caused the kind of fundamental shift towards, uh, you know, the kind of reaching the plateau 50% encryption? Is that, mm -hmm. Can you point to a single factor, or is it multiple things occurring yeah. at the same time? Uh, well, there's different things, but, but one of the things is Edward Snowden. Um, what happened is that companies like the email providers, like the search providers, like social networks, they had the capability to use encryption. That's usually called HTTPS or the secure version of HTTP. They had that capability over the last bunch of years, but they hadn't made the decision to switch over and go through some of the painful upgrades it took to, to get it so that it was really encrypted. What happened in June of 2013 is Edward Snowden started releasing his papers. And, and just as background, um, in August that year, President Obama asked me to be one of the five people on his NSA review group to give recommendations about what to do about all of this. But that gave me a, a perch to watch what happened next. And part of what happened next was a genuine view from computer professionals and a lot of other people that you should encrypt, that it was sort of a moral issue when you can as an engineer to have encryption so that, for instance, surveillance agencies couldn't read it. Another part of it is that we have a, we have a lot of very um, effective American companies that are around the world. You know, the biggest brands in the Internet globally, uh, a lot of them come from the United States. And they didn't want to have the perception abroad that they were basically feeding information to the NSA. And so one of the things that our big Internet providers could do is say, look, we are going to make sure that this is bulletproof. If you're somebody in Europe or you're somebody in Asia and you send an email, it's going to be encrypted, and nobody between you and your recipient 
that maybe the server is held by the email company, but nobody's going to be able to read that. Uh, if in text messages, there's been a huge shift. So that again, WhatsApp is encrypted from end to end, and a lot of the other uh, uh, texting services. So, so partly it was a way for the tech companies to just do the upgrades they should have done. And partly it was an upgrade by the companies to prove to all their customers and to governments around the world that they were going to use this more secure way of communicating. So Peter, you know, consumers obviously should be uh, reassured by that, but one of the things that's in your paper that comes through loud and clear is that non-ISPs have a different level of visibility into what uh, consumer traffic generally looks like. Can you talk about that perspective a little right. bit? Well, and, and, and so this is something the FCC is going to need to, to think about as it decides whether to pass stricter privacy regulations on the ISPs. The, um, the, the FCC has, has rulemaking capability and a proposed rule right now that would say the ISPs have to be uh, under stricter consumer choice rules and other rules. And then when you, you think about your email provider, well, email provider uh, even when it's encrypted from you to your server, the email server, it's opened up in plain text there so the email companies can see it. Um, for search, it's encrypted now from you to your server, and that's a lot of protection. But the search engine you choose is a search engine that then can see, oh, you want to search on you know, ABC, whatever it is. And so uh, same for social networks. You, you log in, it's encrypted. All of these things means that people in the middle who used to be able to wiretap can't wiretap anymore. But it does mean that the providers at the service, like the social network in that example, are going to be able to see what you do on the social network. That's just the way it is in order to display it. So we talk in the report about um, we, we go through some of the big companies and we show that some of them have uh, not only good search or good social networks or good email, but a lot of them have capabilities that are big across different contexts, across different lines of business for all this. Uh, even operating systems, you know, in your mobile operating system, that's deeply connected to sort of everything you do on your phone. So if you use a personal assistant like Siri or Google Now or Cortana, in order for them to link your calendar and to link your emails and to link all the other things you've done like maps, now the operating system is turning out to gather data and being more active inside your phone in a way the operating system didn't used to do it. So our report has you know, 10 or 12 chapters, and we go through how does it work for advertising, how does it work for search, how does it work for these different things, and how can some companies put a bunch of this stuff together. And when you, when you look at that, you, you get a sort of description of the modern ecosystem of how the data flows. Um, and the, the, the paper is up on the, the uh, uh, www slash iisp dot gatech g a t e c h dot edu it's the Institute for Information Security and Privacy at Georgia Tech and if you go to our policy page you can read this and one of the things I hope it does is just mean ordinary people can read and understand how the online ecosystem is working these days. So Peter, the FCC is is uh, thinking about some new rules. Uh, as consumers, all of us would like to think that they're working on kind of a level playing field, uh, but that's not necessarily the case here. If, if, uh, if we look at where the pipe is different between ISPs and non-ISPs, what's, what's important about this FCC conversation presently? Well, the Federal Communications Commission um, has various statutes that it exercises power under. And as part of the so-called net neutrality debates, 
the FCC said, hey, ISPs, we're going to apply these net neutrality rules to you. And that's not what our report's about. But the, at the moment they did the net neutrality thing, uh, another part of that statute says, oh, if you're under net neutrality, then you also should have privacy requirements. So exactly the companies that are covered by the net neutrality classification are now facing new requirements for privacy, for what kind of consumer consent to get, or what kind of opt-in might there be where you have to actually do stuff as a user before certain data is used in certain ways. And so the FCC would do that for the companies they have power over, and that's principally the Internet service providers. And the FCC has said we're not going to do it for what they sometimes call the edge providers, which is all the other services that people use. That, that's a pretty straightforward legal thing. They can decide to put rules on the companies that they have jurisdiction over. And, but one thing you're trying to figure out is how does, how does it affect consumers? How does it affect ordinary users? And so our report was trying to just clarify how is it the data works for ISPs these days and also clarify how is it the data works for the different companies in the ecosystem online these days. So we do not make policy recommendations, but it is sort of interesting when you look at it to see where the data goes, and it's not comprehensive for the ISPs, and some of the most uh, effective gathering of data happens by the non-ISPs. This sounds like uh, this effort is still ongoing, uh, with the Institute there, Peter. So where are you in this project? It sounds like there's a lot more material here that could be developed <laughs> and that consumers would have an interest in. Yeah. Well, you know, I think um, I've been working on privacy and cybersecurity for years. I was in the Clinton White House as the privacy guy and back helping President Obama. And, and so every few years, you know, our, our technology keeps developing and we have new privacy and cybersecurity problems. One of the changes that's connected to ISPs in our report is we used to think of our Internet provider as being like your home computer at home that maybe your family even shared. But now you actually hop around as you go through the day. Maybe you go to the coffee place and hang out and log in there. Maybe you log in from work. Maybe you log in as a mobile roaming in a lot of different places. So another way that things have changed in terms of ISPs is that instead of having one provider that sees everything, as you move around a city, you might be hopping from provider to provider all day and it doesn't all necessarily get put together. So that's just a change uh, in this. So by, uh, by now, about half of all the mobile data uh, traffic is offloaded onto Wi-Fi networks. You know, we use a lot of our mobile phones at Wi-Fi hotspots. That means you're not connecting through your principal provider a lot of the time, uh, and that figure is going to grow. So we're just sort of mapping a technological evolution from the old, you know, one connection to your home to the really mobile, really uh, fragmented kind of world we're shifting towards. You know, I, I do want to bring people back uh, to the Institute in a second here, but you're your public service, obviously, is uh, fantastic. Thank you for serving. Uh, one of the things that's been interesting about this process with the FCC right now is the number of public comments broke the FCC's website. So <laughs> obviously people are interested. Can you give a sense of why that would be? Well, I, you know, I, I, I lived through HIPAA. I was the White House coordinator for HIPAA. And in those days, we had 53,000 public comments on healthcare privacy, but it turned out about 30,000 of them were from a credit card company that put a postcard when you got your payments to say, hey, protect our privacy. So it was about 20,000 actual comments individually. I think everybody who's been in this space knows that net neutrality has gotten people worked up. You know, I've got two sons in their 20s, and, you know, they watch John Oliver or they watch some other 
show, and and uh, there's a sense of, you know, that the society cares about how we connect because we're connected all the time. So part of what's going on here is that there's been public uh, interest that's very high. Part of what's going on is there's, there's various campaigns that are trying to drive traffic to the site so that the agency will see how much people care about it. Um, it's not an election. The FCC is not supposed to go with what, whoever you know, dumps in the most comments. Um, but it is required for the FCC to respond to comments. So when you or I or anybody submits comments, and we sub submitted our report this week as a, as a comment, um, the FCC is going to have to have somebody read through it, um, see how much the facts shift what they believe they should do or how arguments about the law or whatever shifted. So there's a huge amount of, of concern because people want to be connected effectively, and the FCC is the place where those debates take place. Do we have a sense of uh, the, the shape of that volume? Do you have any idea whether uh, this is individual consumers that are uh, responding yeah. to these, these kinds of campaigns? Does this look different than, than in your days doing hip hop? I, I, think, I think it's different. Um, the FCC, you know, uh, I, th I think on net neutrality, um, there, there has been mobilization. And a lot of the mobilization has been to get ordinary consumers, maybe some of the ones who are on Reddit or whatever, but lots of other different sorts of folks, to get ordinary consumers to feel empowered to talk about the Internet the way they want to have it. So I, I would guess, but it is a guess, and maybe the diff things are different, that a bunch of it is, um, uh, activist kind of uh, inclination to get a lot of people motivated. Something else that I don't know how to assess is how much of it is, instead of grassroots, how much of it is what's sometimes called astroturf. And there may be various players in the ecosystem trying to get their folks to, to speak up. Um, but, but I think there's a lot of genuine interest in how people are connected and they want to feel like they have a, a fair system for it. And my role here as somebody who's been through the debates for a lot of years has been to try to inform the debate. Part of what happened is a year ago in April, um, I was asked by the FCC to testify at their workshop that kicked off the privacy thing. And the morning was spent arguing about facts, a lot of it, where some people said the ISPs see everything and other people said the ISPs don't see that much. And I, I was meeting with uh, Chairman Wheeler, Tom Wheeler, um, uh, in connection with the workshop. And I said to him, you know, there's some things that are hard in life, but some things actually have facts. So let's try to get the facts out. So, you know, one thing that an academic who's been in the field for a lot of years can do sometimes is try to get facts. There's been other factual reports. Um, one is by a group called Upturn uh, that, uh, that in a lot of way um, complements the kind of insights that we have in our report. Uh, but we've had our report vetted by people who were not inclined to like the conclusions, and we changed one sentence after receiving comments on the 120-page report. So the facts have stood up to scrutiny, and I hope the FCC has a really good basis factually for making the decisions about what they're going to do next. Yeah, it's interesting. If you can't get everyone to start with agreeing on what the facts are, it's hard to get any progress made on any issue. <laughs> That's right. We haven't always succeeded on that in the presidential campaign. But, you know, <laughs> at, least, uh, at least when it comes to regulations, uh, agencies are required to, to, to look at the record. They're required to respond to the record. And, and then it can be appealed up to the courts to make sure, and the courts try to make sure the FCC has done its homework properly. Uh, Peter, how do uh, listeners contribute their voice to this uh, process with the FCC? Well, comments, um, um, we're doing this, this interview on Wednesday, May 20, whatever, 26th. Um, part of this is um, 
comments are due by this Friday. And then there's a reply period where they have another 30 days to reply to what's said. So people can send in any comment they want to the FCC. Just You can go to their site and find the privacy ruling, and you can get your voice in. Um, you can also do letters to the editor and social media and all the ways, Twitter, whatever it is you like as a way to get it out there. But part of what my hope is is maybe people read the facts and, and come to their own views, not based on slogans. I certainly sure as heck hope the FCC staff does it. I know they've hired some good technologists, and my hope is that they'll, they'll do a reasoned, uh, solid public policy job. Uh, but in terms of people participating, it, it's uh, showing you care and, and emphasizing what it is you care the most about. Uh, Peter, interesting uh, thing that comes from lots of projects like this, and we're going through this ourselves on uh, how open innovation is completely transforming the uh, innovation ecosystem in California right now. Uh, we just completed one study on that that we released on, on Monday, and we know that that's going to lead to other questions for possible study. Uh, it, has the same thing happened here? Have you opened up uh, cans of worms or Pandora's boxes that lead you to <laughs> what will be next? Well, I think, I think there are there are some – so there's something called VPNs, virtual private networks, and people who are in companies might be used to doing that as a way to log in. They haven't been adopted that much by ordinary consumers, but if you use a VPN, then nobody between you and the recipient gets to look at what you're doing. Um, and uh, there was some unclear – there was some lack of clarity about are VPNs configured the right way or there's, is there something that's blocking it. And so there's been some new developments. Opera, which has a you know a web search engine, and and some other companies have come forward with ways to have sort of do-it-yourself, consumer-friendly VPNs. Those are tools where individuals get empowered to sort of be on the internet the way they want to be on the internet. Tor is another one that can route things in a way that does that. So there's privacy and security-enhancing tools that individuals can do. And I think they're, again, post-Snowden and after all these different debates about surveillance and everything, there really are tools for that, and companies have stepped into that space. So that's one area that promotes security, in my view, um, where individuals can try to take advantage of that. And we've certainly seen a generation of startups responding to that, uh, a whole suite of offerings that are uh, built mm -hmm. on end-to-end -end encryption as well. So there does that's seem to be a rush right. there. Yeah. Right. And, and, I, and on the, you know, we're not here for encryption in Apple and FBI, particularly today, but I've written extensively and testified in Congress. I testified with Comey last year in the Senate Judiciary Committee. And, and my view is encryption is the most effective cybersecurity tool we have. It's how we defend ourselves from attackers. And uh, the efforts to break that defense, to break cybersecurity, should be looked at with a whole lot of skepticism. I think the police have a lot of ways they can get their jobs done today. There's a lot of surveillance they can do. Um, but people can innovate about how to protect their own data, and I think that's a good thing. Uh, the California Technology Council has a uh, special interest group called CalCISO, the California Cybersecurity Information mm -hmm. Sharing Organization. Yep. And there are companies active in that that include Wicker and uh, right. Lookout for years, and, and they Security are email. examples of yep. yeah examples of tools that keep people's information uh, blinded to the infrastructure. Right, and and when that and when that happens then the all-seeing surveillance agency or the all-seeing ISP, that doesn't become the same thing anymore. We actually have some tools that let our enterprises and our individuals have control over that data. Uh, Peter, one more time, uh, can you give people uh, uh, the location of where to find the study and sure. your institute at Georgia Tech? So our institute at Georgia Tech is the Institute for Information Security and Privacy, IISP. 
and um, you can just put that name in, and we're all we only ones with that name. But IISP uh, slash uh, Georgia Tech, uh, sorry, GA Tech, G A T E C H uh, uh, dot edu. Um, so we've got this report on ISPs and online privacy, and we have a bunch of other research we've done on the Internet of Things and mutual legal assistance and a ton of other stuff. So we hope to be helping a lot of public policy debates as we go forward. This has been a few minutes with the Honorable Peter Swire. Thank you for your time, sir. A pleasure. We've posted links to Peter Swire's Institute, the study he refers to, and to the FCC comment page in the News and Views section of the CTC website. You can find that at californiatechnology.org news. Coming up next, we'll have startup spotlights on Riverside, California, and Kansas City. And we'll have a Temples of Technology conversation with Amy Millman, one of the co-founders and CEO of Springboard. Until next time, don't forget to subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes and SoundCloud. The Innovation Agenda is produced in Northern California by the California Technology Council. 